gentlemen. Uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, come to thedispatch.com to uh, check out all the free stuff, including today's G-File. And, of course, if you're willing or able to sign up to become a paid member of the community so you can get the, um, the midweek G-File and all of David French's stuff and the full morning dispatch, which is just growing leaps and bounds and is becoming a real institution inside Washington and elsewhere. And, um, and also you get to check out some of our dispatch live events and all of that kind of stuff. We've got another one coming up. Okay. So, um, where to begin? Uh, I just finished the G file. It's a bit of a rant. I know that's not very shocking to a lot of people, but it was even ranty by my ranty standards. Um, and I had to do some, sometimes when you just don't have a topic that you have, in your head or a way to go, you sort of futz around a bit. And so I asked on Twitter for suggestions for things to talk about. And, um, um, and I also got a late start because I recorded a podcast with Diane Ream, which you might want to check out if you like the idea of me being interviewed rather than doing the interviewing. Um, and then we had the editorial meeting and then I had to um, move a body, but that's, that's neither here nor there. And so anyway, um, a bunch of people on Twitter wanted me to talk about this admittedly strange story about Joe Biden getting out of the shower, playing with his dog and breaking his foot. And I agree that on the surface, there should be some real comedy there. I mean, who doesn't chuckle at the image of a 78 year old man soaking wet, um, falling and breaking his foot while chasing a German shepherd. Um, but it's funny. So like, you know, I was looking around, you know, there are a bunch of people on Twitter, a lot of the usual suspects, um, who are already going into Biden foot truther mode and they don't believe the story. And like I say, you know, look, I, I, I believe the story. Um, in, I mean, I understand, I gather, I guess his story has changed a little bit and maybe it changed a little bit because at first he was embarrassed to admit that he was <laughs> soaking wet in a towel chasing after his dog. Um, but it seems to me if you're going to, first of all, I'm kind of curious what sinister truth they think Biden is hiding about how he actually broke his foot. You know, was he, um, smuggling st fake ballots off of a Korean transport vessel, uh, in Maine and dropped a box on his foot or something? I mean, I, I don't get what the, you know, this is not exactly the Vince Foster story. It's not even the Jimmy Carter killer rabbit story. and it seems to me that if you're going to lie about what really happened, you might as well not make up a story that is at least a little embarrassing about yourself. And so, I don't know, I, I tend to believe it. And, um, I know that makes me a, a rhino squish type. And, um, um, and one of the reasons I believe it is that, uh, um, actually before I get to that, I don't know if people got the reference I made, but uh, Roger Stone recently announced that he had complete and total evidence that North Korean forces had made landfall on the coast of Maine 
and were unloading boxes of ballots to help steal the election. And then, of course, he has his weasel words where he says, if law enforcement looks into this and finds that this is true, blah, 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 blah. This is like the the, the sort of uh, conspiracy theory version of, of not even the conspiracy theory version, it's a form of conspiracy theory rhetoric where you, instead of just asking questions, you assert that evidence is incontrovertible and then start complaining that no one's looking into this evidence that, that clearly exists. And this has been the pattern with a lot of this stuff. But I just, I love the North Korean angle on this. Because first of all, for those of you who still have globes in your homes, um, go look at Maine and then look at, and then find North Korea and ask yourself, um, why would the North Koreans send a ship to the East Coast of the United States and the North Atlantic. It's a quite a long trip. Um, you know, did they go through the, the Panama Canal? And if so, there must be records, right? Um, or did they go around the tip of South America? Um, or maybe they use some sort of Northwest passage over the Arctic kind of thing uh, to get here. And, but why, why, you know, why Maine? I mean, you got to get the fake ballots to those swing states and Maine wasn't one of them. And is it that because you were sure that there were too many monitors on the West Coast looking for um, clandestine ballot harvesters from uh, North Korea? And I just find it amazing that, that I know that most people, and certainly the vast majority of people listening to this podcast, um, don't put any credence in this kind of stuff. But someone does, or at the very least, or maybe more interestingly, um, Roger Stone thinks that his fans will believe at least some of this stuff. I'm sure some of them are merry pranksters and they're in on the joke, but some of them take it sincerely. Just as we know that uh, tens of millions of people take Donald Trump's stuff uh, seriously as if he's telling the truth. Um, and, you know, spoiler alert, he's not telling the truth. And um, every day I have to field emails from people saying, Okay, I know the other, th the last thing didn't turn out, but now we've got the smoking gun, and it's the Georgia video thing, which has now been debunked, or it's the claim from Rudy Giuliani that only 1.8 million ballots were sent out, but 2.5 million were returned. Turned out that was a lie, um, or just incredibly egregiously incompetent behavior from Giuliani, which increasingly seems like his best defense on a lot of this stuff. Um, he was using a number from the primaries and applying it to the general election. And literally it took me like four minutes, not even four minutes, two minutes of Googling to figure out that that wasn't true. But in that time, uh, you know, it was all over Twitter. A lot of the sort of CPAC world people were repeating it. And of course they always do the, if true, um, which I just think is a really sort of damning statement about what Rudy Giuliani is doing is that even the people who are pushing his misinformation out there have to caveat that Giuliani is formally presenting this stuff at these Potemkin hearing things um, that he either should know or does know are not true. And his supporters have to do this if true thing while at the same time saying it's a bombshell, it's a smoking gun and all that. It is just so much misinformation that's being thrown out there. 
And I'm just curious what, what their defenders think is the best defense of what they're doing. Is it that they're just grotesquely incompetent and they, you know, like they're filing affidavits that, um, are getting, are showing vote totals from the wrong states. Um, you know, there's another one that came out this week about, I think it was Ellis, Michigan, and how the vote totals there were totally unbelievable, which is true because there is no Ellis, Michigan. Um, so is it that they're just incompetent and sloppy or are they deliberately lying? Because I don't think there's a, there's a third option to all of this. And, um, anyway, it's, it's kind of depressing, but it's funny. Um, um, I'll get back to what I was going to talk about in a second. Um, you know, one of the reasons why we do the dispatch uh, is that, you know, I don't want to just be self-promoting here, but um, we want to provide stuff that that is believable. And it's believable because it's true. And that, what I mean by believable, I mean reliable, that you won't be embarrassed when you forward it to somebody um, and say, take a look at this. Um, it's something that you can not be embarrassed that you're reading. Frankly, I think if you're forwarding gateway pundit stuff, you should be embarrassed. And more importantly, I think if you're forwarding, if you're trying to convince your Trumpy or your super lefty uncle or aunt or something about, uh, about something to be concerned with, one of the reasons why we started the dispatch is we wanted to be one of those news sources that the person could say, you know, well, okay, it's the dispatch, that's believable. And there's, there's, there are very few for sources on the right that can pass that test. I mean, personally, I think National Review should, um, but there are lots of people who have just, you know, sort of liberals who think they don't, they don't trust National Review. I trust National Review. I think it's great. Um, I got my differences with people, with some people there, but that's, it's still a wonderful project product and congrats to them on their 65th anniversary issue. It looks great. Um, but right now, if you're like a suburban sort of liberal Democrat type and you get in an argument with your conservative nephew or something, if the conservative nephew wants to back up what they're saying, basically one of the only products out there that the person will read in good faith is from the Wall Street Journal, you know, in terms of a right of center source. Um, and we want to be another right of center source that people can, can believe and rely upon. And that doesn't mean we'll get everything right every time, but we try really hard to admit it when we get it wrong. And we try really, really hard not to get ahead of facts and all of that kind of thing. And, you know, we just think that there's a, that so much of the transmission belt through Facebook and Twitter and a lot of these sites that monetize making people angry, um, there's just a huge incentive structure to forward outrageous headlines that are, aren't even backed up by the article. And I had a funny thing happen. So I drove up to New York. Um, I was supposed to go up for, we were all supposed to go up for Thanksgiving. And I talked about this on the dispatch podcast, but um, we want to be careful about it. So we all got expensive, rapid COVID tests. And my daughters came back. My, my wife and I came back negative and my daughters came back inconclusive. And my wife got on the phone with the tech and the tech said, yeah, this happens, but I got to tell you, every time we rerun the test and we're going to rerun the test, it comes back positive. And we're like, oh, great. So in an abundance of caution, we canceled driving up on, for Thanksgiving and we got my daughter a second test 
and it turned out that the tech was just lying and they don't rerun it. And, um, and second of all, uh, we're glad we got the, the second, again, expensive test because it turned out that she was negative, which is great. So my daughter and I just drove up by ourselves. My wife stayed behind with the dogs. And um, we spent a night and said hi to grandma and Fafoon and all that. Anyway, so I was having a conversation with my mom. And um, my mom's got this really cool house uh, in New Jersey, right on the, basically on the link, right above the entrance to the Lincoln Tunnel. You can see the entire Manhattan skyline. And it's a, it's a really funky place. And so anyway, um, I was chatting with her and I brought up that there were some people in the woods beneath her balcony smoking pot. And so we started talking about pot and she said, Oh, that happens all the time. It's no problem. And, and anyway, so we started talking about pot and she was saying how dumb it was for New Jersey to totally legalize weed. And we talked about legalizing weed and blah, 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 blah. And how, you know, there, there's problems with doing all of that. And it's fairly normal conversation. And then she said, and did you, did you hear what George W. Bush said? And I was like, no. And she said, oh yeah, my friend told me about it. Um, he said that, um, smoking pot saved his life. And I was like, ah. I, I just feel like I would have heard about this. Like this seems to me it would have broken through the noise and been a thing if George W. Bush said smoking pot saved his life and he doesn't know where he, he wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for smoking pot or something like that. And she was like, oh, well, my, my friend told it to me. And I was like, well, I'm just skeptical. So anyway, uh, my mom's friend texted me the story and it was from some site I had never heard of. And the headline was something along those lines. It was like. Uh, you know, it was, it was George H.W. Bush, but it said, weed saved my life or we, you know, George H.W. Bush admits that weed saved his life. So anyway, I actually read the article, which my mom's friend, nor my mom had done. And I guess I should fill in something here. For those of you who don't know, um, uh, prior to the mass wave of pot legalization that I talked about with Jonathan Adler on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, um, for years, decades, you would run into these libertarians at various sort of libertarian events or, you know, CPAC type things. And, um, and as I've said many times, you know, the, the, a huge part of the energy of libertarianism as a political movement, not an intellectual movement has been drug legalization. That's what, you know, gets people to vote, particularly weed legalization. That's what gets people to vote, give money, all this kind of stuff. And they, uh, they elevated it into a huge issue. And that's sort of why I always say you judge political movements by what they prioritize, not by what they say they believe, because you, you know, it's, it's where you put your energy and your resources that shows what something is about. And anyway, so they would, you know, they would do the stuff. I mean, you see it and they joke about it in movies too, you know, where like, you don't understand the constitution was written on hemp. This country was founded on hemp. You know, the big corporate, you know, overlords are trying to keep hemp down because they know it will put out big pharma and hemp is this miracle substance and yada, 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 and all this kind of stuff. And it was always a Trojan horse argument for legalizing weed. And, um, 
So anyway, it turns out that the story that I read was about how George H.W. Bush, when he bailed out of his plane in the Pacific fighting in World War II, used a parachute where like the ropes were made from hemp. And this was supposed to prove, first of all, Bush's incredible hypocrisy about opposing weed legalization. Um, but the headline was all about you know, how weed saved his life or whatever. And we were supposed to, you know, and anyway, it just seemed to me like a perfect example of how, you know, clickbaity, bad faith BS proliferates on the web. And then people only read the headline in their Facebook feed or on Twitter or whatever. And then it becomes like a game of telephone to the point where my mom is telling me that George W. Bush recently said that he's a pothead or whatever. And, um, and anyway, we don't want to be part of that stuff um, in any way, shape or form. And I, I thought it was a funny story. Anyway, I brought up um, the Biden thing. And I mentioned this in the G file and people who read the G file when I was over at national review might remember this story. Um, one of the reasons why I believe Biden is that I've been injured several times, um, because of my dogs. And, um, the scariest one was late in October in 2016, I had to go to New York to do a panel about the election. Um, oh, what's, what's that guy? That's guy. Um, it doesn't matter. A big sort of liberal media journalist. And we were doing an event, um, that evening. And so I had to walk the dog super early so I could get on a train to go to New York, give the talk and yada, yada, yada. And so I go to this usual park that I go to in my neighborhood and I'm walking the dogs and, um, nobody's there cause it's so early in the morning. It's way before sunrise. And, um, and so, and this is back when Zoe is much more of a puppy and much more rambunctious. So she's running around chasing phantasms and barking at trees and looking for raccoons or whatever. And it's windy. And I hear this rattling of a chain link fence and I assume it's just the wind and I hear Zoe barking, but she was a, more of a barker back then. And so anyway, I'm rounding this turn heading towards the soccer field where I saw Zoe run off to. And all of a sudden I start hearing this, these very heavy footfalls, like, you know, uh, something running. And I assumed it was Zoe running back to me because she often would, and still does. She runs back to me after she goes off on one of her missions. And I look and I see this, you know, tan silhouette of a quadruped. And I think, um, oh, it's Zoe. And then I went, ah, that's, that's too tall. And then boom, like from the light of my phone, it just emerges and it's a deer and it slams it because Zoe is chasing it. And it slams into this heavy metal gate on the chain link fence around the soccer field, pops it off its hinges, and it has to weigh 200 pounds and throws it right into me. And it hits me in the head and in the stomach and knocks me on my butt. I lose my glasses. I had this huge welt um, scab thing right at like where my widow's peak is. And there's this big bolt that comes out of the gate. And if it had hit me in the wrong place, uh, it could have killed me. And of course, I'm lying there, semi-concussed on the ground. The deer runs off. It's fine. Zoe comes back and just starts sniffing around me. Pippa comes back, drops a ball by me, and uh, they don't aren't particularly concerned about my injuries. There was another time when Zoe pulled on a leash while I was going down a flight of stairs. It might have been Pippa. It might have been both of them, because back then we were using double leashes. And uh, I slipped on some stairs. You have these sort of concrete stairs in front of my house. And I got a hairline fracture of my ribs, of one of my ribs because of it. So, I mean, 
the problem with the Biden story for me isn't that he got injured. My problem is that he got injured because he was pulling on his dog's tail and you're not supposed to pull your dog's tail. But anyway, enough of all that. Um, so anyway, I wrote about that in the G file and then I did, I admit it was a stem winder. Um, I am, I am in pretty much schadenfreude mode now about the, um, fecal festival that, that that Trump has turned uh, the GOP into because as far as I'm concerned, pretty much everybody is getting what they deserve. Um, you know, for four years at every opportunity, um, Republican leaders for the most part missed the opportunity to constrain Trump um, or to condemn him in ways that would have lasting impact. The places, and we've covered all this stuff before about, you know, the places where they did successfully constrain Trump are the places where he wasn't actually concerned about any of the substance and just wanted wins. So thank goodness he was constrained on judicial picks for the Federalist Society, you know, that kind of thing. But his, his conspiratorialness, his vindictiveness, his disregard for constitutional democratic norms, people just said, oh, that's just his style, blah, 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 blah. And um, we don't have to revisit that whole argument, except for the fact that since the election, the Trump we see is the Trump that I've seen for five years. And what he is doing now is outrageous. It is just flatly outrageous. And um, people who are untroubled by it, um, even the people who don't believe him, which I think is most people, um, I, I don't really believe these polls that all these people think the election was stolen. I think a lot of people, I do think millions of people think the election was stolen, but they don't think the election was so, they, don't, they believe it like they believe a, um, a shocking turn of events on a TV show. As, as David French says, most of these people are like, I think the election was stolen or there was a lot of election fraud. Um, and what's the score of the Auburn game? You know, not people are like, let's grab our rifles and defend um, our country from the, the demon hordes of the Democrats and their Chinese paymasters. But um, regardless, what he's doing is, is outrageous. And if I had described to a Republican senator or congressman, uh, for the most part, almost all of them, even of the ones who like um, in public lend all this support to Trump. And I just simply described, predicted accurately how this last month would unfold from his remarks on election night to all of the lies and garbage that they're pumping out daily to Trump's formal statement this week from the White House that the election was stolen and all that, um, the attempt to rob uh, Biden in the Electoral College. If I just described all of this accurately, um, a bunch of those senators in Congress would say, oh, come on, he's not going to do that. That's just Trump derangement syndrome. And even if they did believe that I would say, did, did believe me or did believe it was possible, if I then said, and by the way, you won't say anything about it um, because you're too scared of of Trump's fan base to say anything. They would take grave offense. Of course I would. I would stand up for democracy. I would stand up for the rule of law. Of course I would call Biden president-elect. Of course I would say that the election wasn't stolen. But this is how the sort of corrupting instrumentalism that has so taken over so many in the GOP operates, is that when you actually arrive at these decision points, you take the, you take the easy path or the cowardly path. And so I, I, I wallowed in some gloating and I told you so's and, and 
um, and some fairly purple prose about all of it. And I, I stand by all it because frankly, I know this is self-indulgent, um, but I feel like I'm owed this. I feel like I'm owed the, I told you show. So and the shame on you's. I've spent five years saying this stuff about how Trump was unfit. I've been shunned. <laughs> I've been ostracized. Um, um, I've been ridiculed and, uh, it's affected me financially and all of these kinds of things. And the people who have, have merrily gone along with all of this to greater financial success, um, uh, defending Trump, playing anti, anti-Trump games, uh, they've had a good time with all of this. And so now that the Trump we see is actually cannibalize for throwing the Republican party into a fit of cannibalism where you've got these deranged psychopaths talking about, um, not voting, uh, in the Georgia runoff, uh, because they were, you know, Loeffler and, and Purdue are in on the conspiracy or they're not standing up to save America and they're not endorsing the idea of fricking martial law. Um, uh, man. And when Donald Trump is attacking Fox news, um, you know, these people deserve to have, you know, they're not all bad people by any stretch of the imagination. I think a lot of them are decent people who just took the easy path. And now they're in this awkward position of having to sort of navigate this stuff and I'm enjoying it. And, um, it doesn't mean I'm not outraged by what Trump is doing. Um, but, uh, I can have the critical distance and the sort of satisfaction that I, at least I did right as I see it, even when it was hard. Um, and I deserve these, I told you so. And if that bothers some people, fine. Um, at this point, the people who it's going to bother have already tuned me out. Um, but, uh, it really is just a wonderful spectacle of people getting what they deserve. And, um, and I'm not afraid to say so. Um, so anyway, uh, moving along, um, I had this great, I thought it was great. I mean, it was a little difficult to get a, uh, get a rhythm to it, but I had this great conversation with Virginia Postrel about her book about fabric and the history of our textiles. And, um, and I'm glad I did it. You know, I got a lot of grief in house about how this was probably the nerdiest episode of the remnant ever. And I'm okay with that. I like the nerdy episodes. Uh, we got a lot of positive feedback about the nerdy episodes. Um, I think nerdy stuff is really interesting. And, you know, that's really what nerdism is, is that you find things that are worth taking deep dives into because they have layers to them that are interesting beyond the normal BS of daily arguments and conversations. And so her book is really a fascinating story about textiles. And I, I think the, the, as I said in the podcast, the, the most the sort of, not the most interesting, but the most emblematic thing about it that I really liked was her point about how the stone age could better be understood as the string age. And, um, it, you know, and, and the thing is, is that because we get the, because the arrowheads and ax blades made of stone survive to this day because they're made of stone, um, we kind of infer the handle to the blades, but we kind of forget about the string. 
And the string really was, in a lot of ways, the most important invention for thousands of years. String, rope, that kind of thing. Before you even get to clothes or fabric and that, you know, just the idea of, you think about, you know, there's that Arthur C, I think it's Arthur C. Clark. I sometimes say it's Asimov and then get corrected, but I think it's Clark. I think it's a third rule or third law or whatever, which says that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And we all feel like we understand that when it comes to things like airplanes or um, computers or the internet. You know, like we can imagine someone from 100 years ago or 500 years ago seeing this stuff and saying, oh my gosh, that's magic. Television sets, you know, where are the little people on the screen? That kind of thing. Um, but if you put yourself in, in caveman times, right, and you could somehow give them 10 spools of really good nylon rope from Home Depot or fishing line, they would see it as magic, just this unbelievable advance in the things that you can do, the things you can tie together. You can make fishing nets. You can suspend structures. You can join uh, pieces of wood to make structures. Uh, you can create, you know, traps and snares, all you know, just the list of things you could do with it that if you never imagined rope or string, um, before then would just seem like magic. Um, it kind of reminds me, there's a story. I don't know why I'm in such a storytelling mood. I've, I've told this on Glop, I think, but, um, you know, my wife's family was in the grocery business and they were also in the food wholesale business up in Alaska. And back when it was still a big going concern. Um, my, uh, um, my wife's family, my brother, some of my brothers-in-law, my father-in-law were running the business and they supplied, um, all of the villages sort of North of Fairbanks, all the, the native Indian villages North of Fairbanks with everything from canned goods to, you know, uh, you know uh, cooking oil, all of that kind of stuff. And one, uh, one day they started sending up in the normal shipments uh, those, remember, the, you know, those vacuum seal bags of coffee. I mean, they're sort of everywhere now, but they were kind of were kind of amazing when they first came out, like bricks, and they, they suck out all the air, and they're tight, and then we open up, they go, and breathe in all the air. Um, well, that was the new thing. And so they were sending up, you know, shipments of coffee with that stuff. And they got all of these angry calls from... Uh, the various villages up there saying, what the hell is this? And my brother-in-law, Danny, would tell the story about how he was like, well, this is better. It keeps the coffee so much fresher um, and it takes up less space, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, <laughs> and these guys were like, fresher, fresher. We live, you know, you know, a hundred miles south of the Arctic Circle or above the Arctic Circle. You think like freshness is like a huge priority for us? Uh, you know, the, the thing that made the coffee valuable to us were those cans, man. It's all about the cans because the can, you know, those chock full of nuts or Folgers tin cans with the plastic lid. Uh, the natives up there, they used them for storage for everything, from everything from, you know, lard to nails. And that was the real value. The coffee was just gravy. And, um, and it was just, I thought it was, I always think about that as sort of this unintended consequence kind of thing. And you could see how like 
if you, if you could put your mind back to the Stone Age times when they came up with string, this was this was a big freaking deal, much bigger than sliced bread. And by the way, you know, sliced bread, people always say best thing since sliced bread. You know, when sliced bread was invented, 1928. It's true, true fact. Um, and I don't mean like bread that you cut with a knife. I mean, like bread you buy sliced. Um, so anyway, uh, so I, I, I thought that was really interesting. And one of the things I meant to bring up, I got my Game of Thrones uh, High Sparrow uh, uh, labor theory of value thing in in the conversation, even though I kind of I kind of buttered it because I had a brain freeze, sort of like right now. But I um I didn't bring up this thing which I've written about a bunch. Um, I saw Megan McArdle weirdly just mentioned the, the similar idea on Twitter the other day, maybe even today. Um, and uh, you know, I liked it, and I talked about it on here a bunch of times. I think about how going back, asking yourself how far back in time could you go before you were technologically useless? You know, what, what value could you add? I mean, describing airplanes is not a lot of use to people in the 1500s if you don't know how to make a jet engine, right? Or even an internal combustion engine. Um, saying that, oh, in the future you'll have cars, that's nice to know, but like, unless you know how to like forge metal or any of that kind of stuff, you're out of luck. And we kind of talked around that point a bit about how iterative and evolutionary knowledge is, and it builds upon itself until the initial steps of innovation and invention basically become invisible, right? That's my riff about cooking, is that most chefs don't know much about how pasteurization works or curing meat or how you get spices from these various plants, never mind the the botany that went into making these genetically modifying these plants to produce these spices in the first place. They just deal with the last couple steps of that long chain of production and invention to make great meals. And so there's an amazing amount of embedded knowledge in all of the dishes that we eat. And we don't and they're invisible to us because when we go to the supermarket, we just see the end stage. It's basically the eye pencil thing in um, in another form. Um, but there's this great scene, you know, walking dead kind of got bad for a while, but I stuck with it because I'm loyal. Even David French quit on it. And I think it's gotten better in the last couple of years because what they're doing now, not just in walking dead, but also in fear the walking dead and the world beyond this other walking dead spinoff, which is mediocre at best is what they're what they're doing is they're realizing that the way you advance the story, and maybe this is in the graphic novels, I didn't read that far into them. Um, they're replaying the story of civilization, you know? And so in the beginning, it's basically uh, just bands of hunter gatherers trying to survive as they battle nature, including predators. And in this case, the zombies are the personification or unpersonification of of nature writ large and um as as they figure out how to deal with nature they start organizing above um the hunter-gatherer band into city-states and this is the you know this is the evolution of civilization is we don't know where the first city-states came from um or which what what the first city-state was 
but if you read Fukuyama and, and, um, and Phil Bobbitt and lots of people, this is not a unique point to me. The argument is, is that basically, uh, city states emerge almost, almost as an, as a part of spontaneous order as different communities get more and more organized in part to wage war against each other, never mind nature. And they start mimicking each other's advances. They figure out walls. They figure out organized um, military units. Uh, they figure out how to better do agriculture. And it becomes a competitive sort of catalytic process of competition. And that's sort of what Walking Dead is going through, is they're kind of heading into, I don't know, the, I mean, it's not an exact analogy. You can say sort of somewhere between the Bronze Age and, and, the, and the Dark Ages. Um, I like the sort of nods to this where, you know, you have in, in one community as a king, they start wearing armor, they start acting like knights and having, uh, you know, uh, you know, using shields and swords and all of this because bullets are no longer really readily available and trade starts up and all that. But anyway, what came to mind, that was more of a backstory than I intended, um, to the extent I intended anything in this very weird thing I do every Friday. Um, but there's, there's an episode about two seasons ago, I think, where the, 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 the first episode of the new season was the protagonist of walking dead going on a major mission into Washington DC where they break into, um, the Smithsonian um, I guess the museum of, of American history and what they're going for, they're not trying to find, you know, uh, famous paintings or anything like that. They're trying to find, um, these exhibits of like early American looms and wagons and, uh, maybe a cotton gin, even, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, because for them, that is now super advanced technology because none of them know how to make that stuff on their own. And so in a weird way, even though they know that better technology can exist and some pockets does exist, you know, they still have some functioning cars and automatic weapons and all that kind of stuff. Um, in, in the world that they live in the 18th and 19th century, you know, yeoman farmers were actually vastly more technologically advanced because they actually had that kind of technology, which in a post-apocalyptic world with no electricity and no internet and no know-how, because that know-how was largely forgotten, um, they have to go essentially, one might even say, back to the future to get that stuff. And I thought it was a really neat point. Um, and you know, one of the things that, that, that in that world would be just a massive technological advance would be ExpressVPN. When you use the bathroom, you always close the door behind you, right? You don't want random passers-by looking in on you. So why would you let people look in on you when you go online? Using the internet without ExpressVPN is like going to the bathroom and not closing the door. Uh, like I like ExpressVPN. I use ExpressVPN. I think the copywriters might want to work on this analogy a little better, but such as it is. Did you know that your internet service provider, Comcast, Verizon, knows every single website you visit? And what's worse, 
They can sell this information to ad companies and tech giants who will use your data to target you. ExpressVPN puts a stop to this. It creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so that your online activity can't be seen by anyone. I use ExpressVPN. It works on everything, phones, laptops, even routers. So everyone who shares your Wi-Fi can still be protected even if they don't have ExpressVPN. And the best part is using ExpressVPN is as easy as closing the bathroom door. You just fire up the app, click one button, and you're protected. ExpressVPN is the world's number one rated VPN by CNET, Wired, The Verge, and countless others. So if you're like me and you believe your online activity is your business, secure yourself by visiting expressvpn.com slash remnant, not dingo, remnant today. Use this exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash remnant, and you can get an extra three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash remnant. Okay, so um, what else to talk about? Um, so I just think this is weird. I don't know if it's worth really talking about much, but um, the uh, other day we had a op-ed, excuse me, we had an op-ed at uh, The Dispatch, which you can go to at thedispatch.com, by John Bolton. And um, I've criticized John Bolton in the past. I don't see eye to eye about everything with John Bolton, both on policy and also how he handled the Trump era and all that kind of stuff. Although my criticisms of Bolton's handling of the Trump era are probably different than a lot of other people's. I think that's fair to say. Um, but I think Bolton's a serious guy. And, um, and to his credit, he has told the truth. And I don't think, you know, I, I don't know that anybody can point to someplace where he hasn't told the truth. And, um, and moreover, in his piece, it's a, the piece is about the future of conservatism. And one of the things he, you know, one of the points he makes, which I think is responsible and correct, is that conservative leaders need to do a better job of educating, uh, I don't want to call them followers, but, you know, rank and file conservative voters, citizens, um, uh, Republicans, uh, to have faith in the democratic process, to not believe conspiracy theories, not to believe outrageous and outlandish lies and misinformation like we were talking about earlier, um, and that it's the job of, of, of political leaders in and out of office uh, to make that case. And I, 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 I'm at a total loss about how that is a controversial point. Um, and moreover, he says, uh, that Republicans need to, in effect, be by, let bygones be bygones about, you know, the controversies over Trump. And, you know, we can have arguments about that. Um, you would think at the very least Trump people would be somewhat sympathetic to that argument, particularly as, you know, Trump world is, um, just simply vandalizing a whole bunch of constitutional democratic norms on its way out of office. Uh, but instead I got all this crap on Twitter from a bunch of people, um, you know, saying how embarrassed we should be for running this piece and who's John Bolton to be talking about the future of conservatism. And, um, you know, this idea that somehow he has discredited himself. And again, if this was coming from, I don't know, 
and I don't mean this as an, in a negative way, if it was coming from Charlie Sykes, I get it, or Tom Nichols, I get it. They come from the burn it all down school about all of this. They think that um, Republicans who supported Trump are um, com- you know, morally or, or, or ethically compromised and that the only way you're going to fix the Republican Party is to have a wholesale detoxification of it um, or de-Trumpification, sort of like depathification of the Republican Party. I'm not there, you know. Um, I mean, I would very much like to get the Trump style, um, the Trump mode uh, out of the Republican Party. I think that is hugely important. But, you know, I don't think that every single Republican, and I go after them today in the G-File, I don't think every single Republican who refused to condemn Donald Trump forthrightly and early enough, you know, if that every single Republican who didn't go full Jeff Flake um, should be purged. I think that's sort of, you know, it's, 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 it's silly just on the level that it, who's going to be doing this purging. I mean, it's sort of Lincoln project nonsense where those guys are claiming that they're going to re- recreate the Republican party, um, in their image. And it's a very much a sort of how many troops does the Pope have? I mean, that's just not going to work. And, and frankly, anything that, you know, people like Steve Schmidt, um, are, you know, captaining, I'm just not going to be listening to very much. Um, and you know, but you know, look, I have criticisms of Tim Scott for how he's handled Trump, but I have a huge amount of respect for Tim Scott. I mean, a huge amount, you know, Ben Sass is a friend and, you know, I've had my arguments with him about Trump, but, um, I just, I, you know, I, I don't see it. I mean, I have, I have particular contempt for like the way Lindsey Graham has behaved, but anyway, my point is, is that you could see how some Trumpers would be sympathetic, at least on paper, to this idea of saying, okay, let bygones be bygone, let's move ahead, you know, um, for the important work that the Republican Party needs to do. But these criticisms weren't from those people. They were from, you know, either anti-anti-Trumpers or pro-Trumpers. And they were, you know, and some of the suggestions were just really, I think, dumb, you know, like, uh, you know, Bolton's too old to be talking about the future of the Republican Party or the future of conservatives. You need to talk to young people. And I'm not going to go on one of my anti-youth politics tirades, but that's just BS. I mean, it's just dumb. Um, you know, if if we're not supposed to listen to old people about what the Republican Party or conservatism is supposed to stand for, well, Donald Trump's a lot older than John Bolton. Um, it's just, It's just silly, you know, and uh, but moreover, there was just this sort of, this sort of knowing, winking, oh, the dispatch should be embarrassed for running this thing. And I just think it's garbage. I don't, I don't understand it. I don't see it. Um, Bolton has as much credibility to talk about any of these things as, um, you know, any, any Trumper you can think of and more than most of them. Um, and this idea, and what I think is interesting about it is this idea that somehow, because he didn't lie during the impeachment, and because he told the truth about Donald Trump in his book and was disloyal to Trump, I think that's fair criticism of Bolton. And I think it's fair, you know, if you want to criticize him writing a book before the president left office, I think that's fair, too. Um, But uh, this idea that having been disloyal to a Republican politician, um, deprives you of any intellectual credibility in talking about conservatism. 
And I think that's nuts. If you go back and you look, and this is stuff I've written about a bunch, you know, if you go back and you look at how William F. Buckley dealt with, um, uh, you know, Richard Nixon, um, you know, <laughs> never mind Eisenhower, uh, you know, there were adversarial things going on. In fact, you know, one of the reasons why Joe Lieberman became senator for those who have, for all those young people who we should be listening to about the future of conservatism, um, uh, is because there was this guy, Lowell Weicker, who was just a pain in the ass, a true rhino squish lib from Connecticut that, uh, Buckley particularly detested in part because Buckley lived in Connecticut and Buckley helped organize, I don't know if it was called a pack, maybe it was some sort of other committee. I don't know what the campaign laws were back then, um, to support Joe Lieberman, who was then a, you know, a moderate, almost conservative Democrat, um, as far as a Jewish guy from Connecticut can be a conservative Democrat, uh, to, to oppose him. And he supported a Democrat in that field was, does that make William F. Buckley someone that you shouldn't listen to about conservatism? Does that make him a rhino squish? Um, and I, one of the things I, I just dearly wish is that we could have more of that kind of grown up adversarial relationship between the conservative movement and the Republican party where, you know, the point of the conservative movement is to, um, move the Republican, you know, well, let me put it this way. And I wrote a column about this recently. The, 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 the goal of the conservative movement's sort of takeover of the Republican party wasn't just to make the Republican party conservative. That was a means to an end, not the end in of itself. The goal was to move America rightward. And that project had a lot of successes, which is one of the reasons why, um, all of the pro-Trump nationalist blather from 2015 on about how until Trump conservatives never won anything was just all such ahistoric nonsense. Um, you know, from the Federalist Society and the, you know, getting conservative justices on the Supreme Court and then the judiciary to, you know, the deregulation stuff that, you know, if I'm going to be fair, started under Jimmy Carter, but was really pushed by Ronald Reagan that fended off the sort of economic eurosclerosis that was affecting Western Europe. Um, this country, as Ramesh often likes to say, is, um, you know, over the last 30 years has become more pro-gun, more pro-life, and more pro-gay. And, you know, whatever you think about the gay part of it, two out of three still isn't bad. And uh, so there were all sorts of conservative victories in that, but there were also conservative failures. And the problem that we have now is that, and I'm not going to go on my rant about primaries and weak parties, but because most Republicans at the federal level are more afraid of a primary challenge than a general election challenge, the incentive structure is completely different. And so the, the, these politicians are more inclined to pander rightward and do this get out the vote turnout strategy stuff rather than the way it used to be, which was you'd have Republican politicians, they would move rightward in primaries to get just enough of the base vote to add to the sort of the moderates and the mainstreamers to get the nomination. And then they would tack a little bit to the center to win the, the, the median voters where elections are won. And, um, and that's one of the things that kept American politics from being so polarized. 
And then all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, but in the last 40 years, and in, in part because of media balkanization and, and, and also just the effect of primaries and the weakening of parties, the calculation slowly became, and it was a rational calculation, was that since the only important part is getting the nomination, pandering to the base and churning out the base is the most important thing. And that's why this emphasis on purity over persuasion kind of took over the Republican Party and paved the way for Donald Trump in a lot of ways. And um, anyway, I'm sorry, I'm distracted. Uh, my phone keeps going off. The, but the point is, is that the, the, the conservative movement was trying to pull the country rightward and using the Republican Party as a tool towards that end. And now, because, in part because the base has become so radicalized, um, you know, right now because of Trump, but it was becoming radicalized after the Tea Parties as well. Um, and these guys have all gerrymandered themselves into safe districts where, again, getting the nomination is more important than, um, is, is the more important fact than winning the general election. And this is true of Democrats too. You get, you know, Democrats in all these blue cities, if they can, you know, AOC won her not, you know, won the nomination in the, she won her seat in the primary by, um, pulling together a bunch of, you know, barista socialists and, and, and woke left wingers in a very low turnout election. And her model, she is a left wing version of Ted Cruz. Her, her model is to own the cons, to get into these viral meme wars, um, because she understands that as long as she can win her primaries, she's going to win her general election because everything is so polarized these days. And that makes it, and so the problem there, and I think the Trump election is only partially because Republicans down ballot did so well, um, it's, it, it's still a partial illustration of the problem, which is that if the Republican Party spirals so far out there that only the base votes, um, the Republican Party is going to start losing general elections, and uh, and we and and so the weird thing is figuring out a way to get out of this dynamic where you can still be conservative but actually pull people into your coalition and um, and pull the median voter your way. They don't have to join the Republican party. They don't have to like, you know, um, buy the full, you know, Edmund Burke, Milton Friedman, uh, you know, portfolio, but they have to think that Republicans are slightly better at solving problems the way they want them to be solved than Democrats are. And instead we've got stuck in this dynamic where, uh, it's whichever side can get their own side angry enough to uh, gain power. And given the demographic future of Republican voting, I mean, I, yeah, I know Trump improved his standing with, with blacks and Hispanics, but not by huge margins. You still have, you know, majority of Hispanics voting for Democrats. You have super majorities of black, uh, blacks voting for Democrats. It's sort of like the salesman who says, yeah, we lose money on every sale, but we'll make it up in volume. Um, the Republican Party needs to figure out how to appeal to people beyond uh, its core base, particularly when its core base is now being defined by this fever swampy John Birchy nonsense that that Trump is putting out there. And I can't remember how I stumbled into all of this, but um, 
one thing that you actually might want to stumble into is finding a better way to buy car insurance and homeowners insurance. And that's why I want to talk to you about Gabby. You know you're probably overpaying on car and home insurance. Sure, you'd love to save money, but is spending hours on your own shopping for a lower rate to maybe save just a few bucks worth it? Probably not. And that's why you should check out Gabby. Gabby does all the work for you in just a few minutes. And get this, Gabby customers save $961 per year on average. Gabby takes the pain out of shopping for insurance by giving you an apples-to-apples comparison of your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers, like Progressive, Nationwide, and Travelers. Just link your current insurance account, and, and in just minutes, you'll be able to see quotes for the exact same coverage you currently have. That's what I did. It's super easy to use, and I actually found that I was actually have a good deal, um, and, I, and I also have some personal loyalty to our insurance people because they've been great with us. So I've stayed with uh, State Farm in, in, in Washington, D.C., but I got peace of mind from actually finding out that I, was, I wasn't overpaying. Um, and I have to say, if I was overpaying by a thousand bucks a year, I probably would have switched to somebody else. So like I mentioned, Gabby customers save $961 per year on average. Wouldn't that be nice to have in your pocket every year, particularly during COVID? If they can't find you savings, then they'll just let you know so you can relax knowing that you have the best rate out there and they'll never sell your info. So no annoying spam or robocalls. So you're probably overpaying on car and homeowners insurance. See how Gabby can save you. It's totally free to check out and there's no obligation. Go to gabby.com slash remnant. That's G-A-B-I dot com slash remnant. Gabby.com slash remnant. We thank Gabby for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. One last point on this uh, thing that I kind of buttered in the previous conversation. I've been thinking about this. I gave a talk about this recently in, in Texas. Um, the, uh, and I wrote something sort of along these lines a couple of weeks ago about Joe Manchin. Uh, you know, as I often say, and I actually, I'm recycling this because I said it to um, Diane Rehm this morning. Uh, James Madison was a better um, philosopher than Alexander Hamilton, even though we have to concede that Hamilton was a better rapper. And um, one of the most brilliant things about the sort of Madisonian system that he set up, and I know I've talked about this a bunch before, but it, it dawned on me that, you know, you know, we're used to saying that the Madisonian system is brilliant because by cutting up power, by dividing power among different branches, both horizontally and vertically, um, it makes it impossible for too much power to accumulate um, in one person or one body's hands, right? Because as they say in the Federalist Papers, you can have, uh, you know, despotism doesn't have to be about a single despot. Like the Parliament of Venice, I think is their example, was despotic and there were, I don't know, 380 members or whatever it was. Um, Congress can be despotic too. And, and certainly the Committee for Public Safety can be. Um, and so anyway, that's the normal way we talk about it, is that it, it, it prevents, it creates all of these fire breaks from power accumulating too much in one place and letting a leader or an institution have 
the ability to impose arbitrary, wield arbitrary power on the citizenry. And, um, and I think that's all true and, and that's great, but there's this other aspect of it that it never really occurred to me. And, you know, this, this dynamic I was talking about before about needing to go, it used to be for all our lives that, um, politicians would move to the left or to the right, if they're a Republican or a Democrat, um, in the primaries to appeal to the base, and then they'd move to the center in the general election. Um, uh, that was the norm because the the centers where elections were won is by that's where the majority makers were and uh but that was never guaranteed to be the way electoral politics in america would work i mean the founders were very skeptical about parties in the beginning although madison came around and realized their utility but you could also have instead of concentrated power in one party or one person you could have a situation where you have two parties that are evenly divided that, if given power, would want to rule arbitrarily or, or rule unilaterally, right? That's the great fear that Republicans have about the Democrats getting control of the Senate, not, not Lynn Wood, who thinks it's your constitutional and patriotic duty to, um, you know, in order to own the demonic forces of the left, you have to ha give them full control of the Senate, which is like, it's a take. But anyway, you know, that's what most Republicans are afraid of about giving the Senate over to the Democrats. And uh, that's what Democrats are typically, you know, afraid of about Republicans, if they can get control of the House and the Senate. And that's what all of the debates about the filibuster end up boiling down to is this fear that one party will ride roughshod over the other, because we're living right now in a moment where both parties have very little interest in compromising or negotiating with the other party. And so it becomes this contest every four or every two years to see which party can get total control of the presidency and the, and the Congress, and then sort of like Obama did in his first term, ride roughshod and get everything they want without any buy-in from Republicans. And that's very much what Donald Trump did in his first couple of years was um, ride roughshod over Democrats and get everything that they want. And, but what it dawned on me is that when you have a situation like this, where the center is very empty and there isn't a major constituency for it in practical terms in politics, I actually think there are a lot of people who are actually, actually are in the center, but they're not organized. They haven't figured out a way to assert themselves against both the left and the right. And so what ends up happening is the, the center gets split from one party to the other, and that party then acts as if it has a mandate that it really doesn't have, because lots of people are really just voting against the other party. But anyway, we now live in a system where if you did a chart of the ideological orientation of uh, Republicans and Democrats in Congress, you would see major clumps at the far left and at the far right, very few people in the center. But the thing is, the brilliant part about the Madisonian structure is that that system actually empowers the center because the center are the ones who get to break log jams. If everything's evenly tied, you know, uh, Ted Cruz doesn't have a lot of power. No one's, he's not going to persuade any Democrats about anything. You know, Matt Gates is, is, you know, he's, well, he's just a joke, but you get the point. The people who actually have the ability to cut deals and make things happen 
are the people who are actually willing to negotiate across party lines. And obviously, to some extent, that was always true. But the way parties used to work, it, it, it wasn't nearly as visible because you had lots of liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats. Now you only have a handful of people that could even remotely be called conservative Democrats in the Senate. Joe Manchin, I think, is fairly one of them. At the very least, he's a moderate Democrat um, or a centrist Democrat and, and a couple others, right? And then you have a couple Republicans who, you know, I think Susan Collins, you can call a liberal Republican. Lisa Murkowski is basically a liberal Republican. Mitt Romney is not a liberal Republican, but he's actually willing to work across the aisle. Ben Sass is definitely not a liberal Republican, but um, he's actually empowered because um, he is not beholden to Trump the way a lot of people, other people are. Anyway, the Madisonian system, even though all of the entrenched interests that actually dominate both the House and the Senate are way to the ideological or political right and left, I, I don't, I'm not completely comfortable saying they're to the ideological right because, look, I, I think I'm more conservative than a lot of these nationalist guys are. Um, we don't need to get into the weeds and all that, but you know, you, you can say that Josh Hawley's more right wing than I am, but I don't think he's more conservative than I am. Um, the second you start talking about you know industrial policy and picking winners and losers and all of that kind of stuff, um, that doesn't even though it's more popular among right wingers, that doesn't in my book at least make you more conservative. But anyway, the 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 numerical power is like really bifurcated at the fringes. And yet the actual political power, because of the way Madison designed our political system is still in the center. And I think that's a really important way to think about these things. You know, Joe Manchin single-handedly, I think I talked about this recently, you know, he's single-handedly destroyed um, the Democrats' chances of passing the, you know, at least the AOC version of the Green New Deal or Medicare for All, because he, re he announced that he refused to support uh, obliterating the, the legislative filibuster, which means that in, one, in that one statement that he made to Brett Baer, so long as he's good at his word, and I think it would be political suicide if he, if he wasn't, um, he pulled the Democratic agenda vastly to the right. And I think that's that's kind of the point I'm trying to get at is that Republican conservatives need to figure out ways to talk to people who may not disagree, may not agree with everything that I believe in or everything that's in the Republican Party platform. I guess if we have platforms again, um, but but can be persuaded at least on a piecemeal strategic basis to join the republic the Republican coalition and move legislation, move the agenda rightward. And so the, the trick here isn't to make the Republican Party more conservative. It's to make it more in the interest of Democrats to move slightly rightward from their base. And I think that there's reason for hope that the Madisonian system actually at least illuminates a path where that may be possible. I mean, we already know that, you know, Biden is making at least some of his cabinet choices based upon what can get by Mitch McConnell. Um, and in part because everything is so tied, he can't afford to pull Democratic senators out of the Senate uh, because they need every single one of those votes. And so like the one of the major boogeymen that, 
you know, the Medusa's head that a lot of my uh, friends who really didn't like Trump, but were going to vote for him anyway, um, because they were so terrified of Elizabeth Warren becoming Treasury Secretary and, you know, and seizing the means of production from the Treasury, uh, she can't become Treasury Secretary. Instead, it's Janet Yellen, who, you know, you may have disagreements with, but she is a perfectly acceptable choice for um, a Democratic administration's Treasury Secretary. And, you know, one of the things, one of the annoying things on Twitter, just on that, you know, is like this thing about how Bolton's too old to talk about, you know, conservatism. The other night, there was this riot of, you know, beer muscly, young, Twitter addicted, very online right wingers who were talking about how outrageous it was that Chuck Schumer uh, wanted the Senate to confirm all of Biden's picks even before Biden's inaugurated. And they're making it sound like this is just an outrageous request. Why would Republicans ever agree to doing something like that? And the answer is, it's because that's what's the way it's normally done. It's just, that's a grown-up thing to do. It's how government works. Um, it's actually probably in the political interest of Republicans to do it, particularly if they end up losing the Georgia runoffs, by the way. Um, so I mean, it was tactically stupid, but it was also no-nothingism. You know, George W. Bush's entire cabinet was approved by Democrats before he became president, um, or I think almost his entire cabinet was confirmed before he became president. And, um, but so anyway, I think that, that this tension that is a product of the way our system was set up, which is better than a parliamentary system, is a way of actually empowering people, you know, in the center at the the left side of the Democratic Party, I mean, at the right side of the Democratic Party and the left side of the Republican Party to actually forge more conservative um, policies than we would get if Democrats did what Obama did. Um, and in the long run, if Republicans did what Trump did, because that invites a backlash. And then the other side, get when they get in power, they think they're entitled to get everything that they want the same way the other side got everything that they want. And so I'm kind of like, I'm not a centrist guy. I, you know, read my very underrated book, Tyranny of Clichés. I, I have a lot of very strong opinions about the, the uses and abuses of the term center. Um, I don't glorify the center. Um, I don't glorify this idea of splitting the difference uh, between what I think is right and what is wrong. But politics is also about transactions. And I think that if we want to make politics less insane, Conservatives need to think more strategically and more intelligently um, and more dispassionately about what the actual goal is. And if the actual, and instead of behaving as if they are all de facto political consultants for the Republican Party, um, you know, auditioning constantly to be Fox News pundits, if instead they think about what is, what is the end game and what, what is it that we can do to get more sensible policy out? Um, of of Congress and make politics less crazy and infuriating and fearful, and make it seem more insane that if uh, to think that if the other side gets in power, it's the end of America. That's in conservatism's interest because it's in America's interest and it's in all of our interest. And um, and it's very new for me to be talking about the glories of the center, but I I I, I think that's one of the only ways you're going to end up siphoning the bile out of the system. All right, so 
I, I did a lot of storytelling on this. I'll do one more because I just remembered that uh, I said I might bring it up on this podcast um, when I did my when I had my conversation with Bing West, um, and I hope people listen to it. I thought it was really interesting. Um, I uh, I wasn't quite prepared for Bing to be as disciplined. I mean, he's a Marine, so. Uh, I guess I should have expected it about bringing everything back to his novel, but I'm glad to promote, help promote his novel. You know, the remnant moves product. I think Bing West is one of the most impressive human beings I have ever met. Um, he was a decorated war hero. I know he's got that chowderhead accent, but he's actually, um, a fairly legendary defense intellectual. Um, his book about his time embedded in a village in Vietnam is still, I believe, required reading at West Point. Um, and, and he's just a great, great independent minded guy. And, uh, um, I'll actually tell you two stories. One, I was on, uh, I was in, I was in Normandy with Bing West on a national review cruise. Um, and we were visiting, you know, the graveyards and, and the beaches and all of that. And if you don't know anything about um, Point du Hoc, you should read up on it. Um, there's a famous speech you could find by Ronald Reagan that Peggy Noonan wrote called The Boys of Point du Hoc. Anyway, not to get too deep in the weeds on it, I, I was there, and it's this major rock outcropping that the I, th I think rangers had to seize if the, if the D-Day landing was going to be successful. And my apologies if I'm butchering this. But um, it's just this incredibly, you know, daring military assault where in the cover of darkness, they have to scale this crazy rock outcropping where they're almost like climbing upside down to do it, to get this machine gun nest that has visual line of sight um, on, I think, two of the beaches. And I don't know, as, as, I, as I'm probably butchering this, um, you probably know, I don't know a lot about sort of, uh, the nitty gritty of military stuff, but, um, I'm walking down there by myself and I'm looking, I'm reading the plaque and I'm looking down at this rock face that they had to climb. And, um, and I just say, you know, how the F did they do that? And I probably said it a little too loud. I didn't mean to say it, but uh, you know, cause there were tourists and kids around, but I was just sort of like stunned by it. And then I'm just sort of sitting there on the wall waiting for, um, my wife to show up or the people I'm with and Bing strolls down. And again, this is a super decorated combat veteran who has been, who has seen, um, who's been in combat zones, not just in Vietnam, but in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and he comes down there. He doesn't see me. He walks right past me as I'm sitting on the wall. And he looks down and he looks down the beach and he looks down the rock face and he looks down the other beach from his left to his right. And then he just mutters, how the F did they do that? <laughs> and I felt super vindicated in my being as impressed as I was. Uh, the other story, which I think he misunderstood what I was referencing, or maybe there's a reference to it that he used in the book and I didn't pick up on it because I haven't had a chance to read the book yet. But he told me this great story. He was a champion, uh, um, spear fisherman and when he was a teenager and he told me this long story I can't do it justice because he just tells it so well and you can tell he's told it many times um, but he told this story about how he was on a boat and 
with a bunch of other spear fishermen and i guess they were fishing for striped bass and he has all this color in it and so he says you know one of the rules about when you're going spearfishing with a bunch of guys on a boat is that the guy who owns the boat gets to go into the water first. And the reason for this is, is that striped bass are super skittish and uh, you take a shot at one and they all may just go away um, and ruin the day. And so at least the guy who paid for the gas and paid for the boat gets first dibs at, at, at trying. At least this is the way I remember the story. I mean, he told me this, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. And anyway... So he says the guy who owned the boat, I can't remember his name, but it was a very colorful name. Um, like has brown leather tanned uh, skin because he has been in the sun for so long and he's an older guy. And he goes in and where the boat is, I guess it's off Rhode Island or Massachusetts, but it's like where the continental shelf, continental shelf just drops off like 2,000 feet. And, um, and this guy is swimming out there and apparently he's a big collector of nautical stuff. It's not Bing is swimming. Bing's a 16 or 17 year old on the boat. It's this other guy. He's out there swimming and whatever his name, call him Rusty, um, is a big collector of like nautical salvage stuff. And he sees off in the distance, right along the continental shelf, this amazing brass compass that, um, clearly from a wreck. And, he thinks, oh man, this would be like perfect on the dashboard of my boat. And he swims towards it and he swims towards it and he reaches out to like grab it. And only then does he realize that he was hallucinating and that the light was playing tricks on him or whatever it was. And what he was reaching out to was like the eye of a great white shark. And he's like, and he only realized that like when he basically touches the great white shark and the great white shark does this thing that I just assume great white sharks do. They certainly would in cartoons, um, is he does a double take. This is like, wait a second. Why, why are you coming to me? This isn't how it works. Why are you like grabbing at me? And the shark, you know, didn't attack at first because it was just so confused at the effrontery of this skinny leathery dude reaching out and grabbing at his eye and then all of a sudden the guy realizes that it's a great white shark and like screams and starts swimming and the great white shark is gives chase <laughs> and the thing is you have to wear these like weight packs to get low when you're spearfishing apparently i don't do these things and um they see the way he described it was fantastic but they, like they see him breaking out of the water um and he's swimming fast and he's swimming fast which is hard to do on the surface with these weight bags and then they realize because they see the shadow of the great white shark um coming towards him and they said that he said he'd never seen anybody swim so fast in his entire life and he makes it to the side of the boat and normally what you have to do is lift the guy up because it's really hard to pull yourself out of the water with these weights on you and this guy rusty leaps into the boat like a total like a like a like a dolphin breaching the surface and leaps straight into the boat right as like out of jaws the great white kind of just skims by underneath the boat and uh and and dusty's I mean, uh, dusty uh bing says that he had never 
he couldn't believe that someone so tan could be so white. And he turned just completely pale as he sat in the boat, terrified about what just happened. And then he says, and so the moral of the story was, it was no longer a tradition in Rusty's boat that he be the first one to go into the water. And I'm sure I'm forgetting other great bits about it, but it was one of the great sort of uh, stories over beers that you didn't know where it was going um, until the end that I ever ever heard. And I think about that. It's sort of like, remember when you were a kid and the first time you saw Jaws and it kind of ruined the ocean for you for a while because you just, you're, every time you went in the ocean, you opened your eyes, you imagined just like the face of a shark emerging from the, the, the murk, uh, the murkiness. And I've thought about like that situation a bunch of times and it, it scares the bejeebus out of me because I don't think I have an irrational fear of sharks. I have what is called a rational fear of sharks. So anyway, that's about it. I hope this worked. I hope I, I feel like I repeated myself on some of this stuff, but I always feel like that. Uh, please check out the G file. Um, please, if you can sign up for the dispatch, uh, go to the dispatch also to find out about our next dispatch live event. If you are a member and um, thanks again so much for listening and putting up with me as I ramble and I'll talk to you next time. Sure.